Welcome to Technovation, a weekly conversation with people who are shaping the technology landscape. I'm Peter High, president of Meta Strategy, advisor to technology executives, Forbes columnist, book author, and your host. Each episode of Technovation features insights from top executives and thought leaders at the intersection of business, technology, and innovation. If you like what you hear, we'd be grateful if you give us a rating on iTunes or through whatever other source you use for podcasts. And please subscribe so you don't miss a thing. Thank you. My guest today is Don Weinstein. Don's the Corporate Vice President and Chief Product and Technology Officer of ADP, a provider of human resources management software and services with revenues exceeding $14 billion annually. In this role, Don oversees client-facing product development and internal technology operations. In this interview, we discuss ADP's history as one of the earliest cloud companies, as well as why the company has shifted from embracing the private cloud to a move to the public cloud. We also discuss the innovation labs the company's created, how the larger ADP organization draws new practices from the labs, and why one of the hardest challenges that any organization has isn't identifying new ideas that have promise, but canceling those that don't. We also discuss how a partial reopening of offices could negatively impact productivity and agile methodologies, some of ADP's efforts around diversity and inclusion, how artificial intelligence algorithms can actually reinforce historical bias, and a variety of other topics. Before we get to our interview, I wanted to introduce you to our sponsor, Zoho, and the company's president, Timothy Casby. Prior to taking on his current role, he was the chief information officer of a number of companies, including Reliance Industries, Sears, Intrexon, and the Warehouse Group. He's now at Zoho, a most unusual enterprise software company, and wanted to share some perspectives from it. Timothy, take it away. Zoho Finance Plus is a unified finance platform. Here, we have bundled seven different apps to align finance processes of most enterprises, starting with invoicing, books, inventory, subscription, expense management, payroll, and checkout, to collect all your payments with out-of-the-box integration with Stripe, PayPal, Worldplay, and many others. Zoho Books provides end-to-end accounting, right from negotiating deals to raising orders to invoicing. It handles all the mundane tasks so you can focus on your business. Invoice your customers for one-time or subscription-based payment plans. Help your employees do their expense management with single touch from mobile device. With multi-currency, multi-bank, multi-country support. Learn more at zoho.com slash finance. Thanks, Timothy. I also wanted to share a quick message from our sponsor, Sykes. Sykes is a leading provider of multi-channel demand generation and customer engagement services, helping Global 2000 companies enhance touch points at every stage of the customer journey. To share some perspectives, I'll briefly turn it over to Ian Barkin, the company's chief strategy and marketing officer. Customers don't want and don't deserve a new normal. They deserve and want a better normal. At Sykes, we know this because we spend over 3 billion minutes a year listening to and serving customers of the world's leading brands. And with that much listening, you can't help but know what delights, what infuriates, and what drives customer behaviors and decisions. So what is a better normal? We believe it's the delivery of a truly intelligent customer experience, a thoughtfully designed set of processes built on well-deployed intelligent automation and AI augmenting a highly trained service team, able to work safely from home if necessary, all backed by a cloud-based workforce management and collaboration platform. The call to action has never been clearer for CIOs, CTOs, and the broader C-suite. New is not enough, and the time for tinkering has passed. The winning combination of technology, talent, and customer insight is how to create intelligent customer experiences, and a truly Better normal. 
To read more about intelligent customer experiences, check out sykes.com forward slash ICX. Thanks, Ian. And now on to our interview. Don Weinstein, great to see you today. Thank you for joining me on Technovation. Oh, thank you for having me. Great to be here. Wonderful. Don, I thought we'd begin with your role. You're, you uh, are the corporate vice president and the chief product and technology officer of ADP, Automatic Data Processing, the human capital management organization based in Roseland, New Jersey, um, a role that you've had for a bit more than two years now. It's an interesting combination of, of responsibilities. There are a few peers of yours, but certainly it's not the most pervasive uh, set of, of combined responsibilities. I wonder if you could take a moment and describe your purview. Yeah, that's a, it's a great question because I do find it to be a little bit unusual, um, at least in my experience, in that it combines sort of your traditional CIO role uh, as well as the CTO role. So it's pretty much anything and everything related to technology that could be the desktop support for our internal users all the way to development and introduction of cutting-edge new products into our markets and, and pretty much everything in between. And talk, talk a bit about, just for context purposes, uh, I mean, I believe you still produce one in six checks in the United States of America. So the number of people who are listening here probably are familiar with ATP, familiar, you know, intimately familiar as they as you help them get paid every month or every couple of weeks. Uh, talk a bit about the... Um, the use of technology in your business. I mean, you are actually, many people will point to ADP as one of the original cloud companies, even before the term was invented. Uh, but yeah, talk right. a little bit about sort of your own strategy and, and the use of technology, some of the progressive things you and your team are doing. Ab- absolutely. And it's a, here's a funny stat for you. Since you, you mentioned in the U.S., at least we pay uh, roughly one in six people every pay period. But, you know, because of natural uh, turnover in the economy, uh, we said there's basically like a 90% chance that you'll get paid uh, by ADP at some point uh, in your career. Um, and so, we, you know, we have been around. We, we actually, uh, you know, our, as ADP invented the market for outsourced payroll services. Our, our founder, uh, Henry Taub, is quite a, a compelling story there um, in that uh, he, was, uh, he was an accountant and one of his clients, uh, their payroll rep was out sick and it was Friday payday and, and they didn't know what to do. They were tearing their hair out and people weren't getting paid. And he thought there's, there's gotta be a better way. And so, you know, it basically became, you know, the foundation of, of the company. And it's really, that was back in 1949 and really embraced technology ever, ever since. We recently dug up the original prospectus from when we went public back in, in 1961. And it talked about, you know, why are you going public and what do you plan to do with the proceeds? And, and it was all about to invest in technology back then was, you know, the predominant emerging technology of the day was, was the mainframe computer. You know, fast forward 50 years now or more and the predominant technology is, is moving into the public cloud, of course. But, um, you know, what hasn't changed is our embrace of being on the cutting edge of technology every step of the way. So, you know, we were the first to accept payrolls over the internet, and that was back in the 90s when we uh, introduced a product called EasyPayNet. Uh, we were the first to introduce uh, the ability for our clients to enter their payroll information on a mobile device. And, you know, it seems it seems so passe now, but, you know, circa 2008, 2009, it, it was actually quite cutting edge. And, you know, my experience with that is that, you know, the technology cycles change, 
you know, what has endured is, is the company's ability to embrace the latest technology of the day and turn it into, uh, into value add, um, for the clients. You know, at the end of the day, the entire premise of, of our company is that we are an outsourced service provider, right? We provide a service, in this case, payroll and other ACM transactions like tax and benefits. And we do so at scale more efficiently and more effectively than any one of our, our client companies uh, could do so on their own. You know, if you think about, uh, we were talking a little bit uh, before we started here about the latest changes in, in, in payroll tax rules here in the U.S. And, and actually, you know, we're in, we're in over 140 company, countries around the world. And in response to the latest pandemic, there have been over 2,000 uh, tax code changes globally that we've had to implement. And we could do it once at scale on behalf of our clients, uh, much more efficiently than every single one of our clients trying to figure that out for themselves. You know, and then at the same time, as, as that's our premise in terms of our core competence of what we provide to our clients, you know, we also recognize that our core competence is not being the best in the world at running infrastructure. And so as we've seen advances in technology come out, you know, we've been migrating uh, more and more of our applications to the public cloud. I think we get certain advantages in, in agility and efficiency in, in so doing. Also, as I talked about, you know, there's a uh, 140 countries that we do business in and, uh, and global privacy is also a, a big consideration right now. So, you know, data, data movement, the ability for us to just, you know, stand up, a, uh, you know, stand up a location in, uh, in a, in a cloud provider in one of these markets much more effective than trying to run our own colos in those, uh, in those areas. So we've really, uh, we were a, a private cloud company for a long time and, and now we're embracing, uh, the public cloud. And then, you know, you asked a little bit about kind of the innovation strategy and, and where we see that going. So, you know, as I talked about, we're, we're kind of the originators of our market and, and we're the biggest ones, uh, out there. I, I think that's a strength of ours. At, at the same time, it's a very competitive Space. There are a lot of startups coming in. Startups are very nimble. They can move very quickly. And so we have to look at, well, what are our advantages? And the biggest thing is, is the scale and the size of that client base, in particular when it comes to data. So worldwide, you know, we, we touch about 50 million paid employees. Uh, most people here in the U.S. are paid biweekly. Uh, outside the U.S., you see more of a, a monthly type of scenario. But Net net, we'll do about a billion payroll transactions annually, and we do more than just payroll. We do uh, uh, benefits plans for tens of millions of people, uh, time and labor schedules, uh, recruiting. We outsource recruiting. We'll become the recruiting department of our clients. So we see millions of job postings, tens of millions of applicants, and then we can take all that data and turn it into insights for our clients that can make us a a more valuable partner. Um, you know, everybody's talking about machine learning these days. At the end of the day, you know, machine learning is just running algorithms on top of a data set. And our core point of view is that the algorithms themselves are becoming commoditized. And what's really differentiated is the, and, and hard to replicate is the quality of that, of that underlying data set. And, and, you know, we've got like petabytes worth of 
of data that we're sitting on that I think is just is just total gold uh, in this market. Yeah, it's interesting, and I wonder. So, so as you point out, the the statistical significance of the data that you have flowing through your your systems is really remarkable. In fact, you've developed. Uh, I don't know if it's appropriate to call it a competitor to the U.S. government, but your own kind of surveys of and and, and data that you offer to the public based upon employment, uh, uh, for example. And can you talk about, I mean, I, we're talking in the throes of uh, the pandemic and the economic yeah. crisis that has been caused by it. Um, you know, I wonder if there's uh, any any uh, insights, I'm sure there are, uh, we would be appreciate uh, your sharing some insights from what you're learning as a result of reading the tea leaves that you have access to. That, yeah, that's right. You're referencing our, na- our, our national employment report, which we we consider to be more of a complement to, you. not okay. a competitor to the, uh, <laughs> the Bureau of Labor Statistics uh, out there. But, uh, you know, certainly very widely followed. Just to give you a sense of it, we introduced that back in 2006. So, again, not something that's been a, a brand new thought to us overnight, but, but we've been at it for quite a while. We actually, and, it, and back to the global footprint, you know, we introduced um, similar reports in Canada and in France. Uh, and we've been looking at other countries where we've got a, a pretty good footprint. But uh, in terms of the downturn, what did we see? Well, well, certainly there was, you know, steep downturn uh, that started in, in late March and carried through pretty much to early May. Um, and then it felt like it sort of bottomed out right around the beginning of May. And we saw a, a pretty good snapback in the late May, June time frame. And then since then, things have kind of stabilized. And I'm talking about a number of different, you know, data points we look at. So from a payroll perspective, of course, we can just see how many people are on payrolls getting paid. We can see how much they're getting paid in wages. We can see how many hours they've worked. But we can also see other more leading indicator type trends as well. Those are kind of backwards looking. We can look at things like jobs posted. Um, are people hiring? How much are they hiring? Jobs filled. And so one of the things that was interesting is we saw a slowdown in, in hiring trends, of course, and job postings. Also saw, I mean, there was a big spike in terminations. And now what we're seeing is a real slowdown, especially voluntary terminations. People just aren't leaving jobs uh, as much as they were even, you know, five or six months ago. It, it feels like, you know what? I got a stable situation here. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna ride it out, and so um, those are the types of early leading indicator trends that we can get out of the transactions, as well as you know the very timely. Okay, how many people are working? How many are getting paid? How much are they getting paid? Um, and the like. Uh, I'll give you one other. Uh, I I found it to be fascinating. I find a lot of interest in in, in the data that we have. Um, and, you know, another public policy one that came out several years ago was around the Affordable Care Act, and we have a lot of benefits data. So there are questions about, you know, people getting uh, health benefits from their employer, and we have all the data on that. Does the employer offer it, and then does the employee take it as a function of their salary? And what we found was um, anyone who is making uh, – I'll get to the data. It's, it's directionally right. So you can get the paper off the off the ADP Research Institute website uh, to get the exact facts. But anybody who's making less than twenty thousand dollars a year did not take the benefits that their company was offering. Companies offering the benefits, but I don't make enough money. I need all the cash I can get my hands on. I just don't take them. And then from twenty thousand a year 
to $80,000 a year of income, the rate at which people do sign up for benefits increases just like a linear straight line, as you can imagine, up to around $80,000 a year of, of income. And it, it flatlines somewhere in the 80 80 percentiles, and then it just flatlines. It doesn't matter if you make 80000 a year or $800,000 a year, about 85% of the people take the benefits that their company offers, and you know the rest don't, presumably, because maybe they've got a spouse who's working, who's got a different benefits plan. But it's really interesting to look at to say, okay, I can understand then with that relationship, if my goal is to help people get benefits and I want to leverage the current predominantly employer-based system, who needs subsidies, who doesn't, how much subsidy do they need? And you could just see it plain as day in the data set that we're sitting on. And I use that just as an example to to get at how powerful some of that, the breadth of that data can be from, you know, from our perspective, we use it to make decisions about, you know, how we run our company. Um, from our client's perspective, we offer it up to them to help them. And, and from a, just that we offer it up there as a public good, the ADP Research Institute, to help make better policy type decisions. It's, it's really interesting. I appreciate you sharing those those uh, anecdotes. You know, one of the things that you mentioned earlier was you're in a space that is very competitive. Naturally, there there are a lot of uh, you know startups that are entering into this space. Uh, but you, of course, talked about the advantages that you have, which which uh, especially with the examples you just gave are, are readily apparent. But um, you also talked about the nimbleness of startups, and I wonder, you know, how have you, how has your organization um, approximated some of those same uh, advantages. I mean, it requires, of course, in your case, you've got a legacy fill in the blank of a variety of kinds, whether it's, you know, cultural legacy, process legacy, technology legacy, as any company would, right? Uh, and in order to be nimble, it requires, you know, updating uh, and modernizing some of those very things. And I wonder, it's a rather broad question, uh, it lets you kind of take whatever angle you'd like to on it. But how have you thought about uh, ensuring that your organization is is more nimble to, to better compete with the startups and some of the advantages that they have from that perspective at least. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and it's a great question. It's something that that we take very seriously. So, you know, several several years ago, um, and I have to give full credit to our to our CEO Carlos Rodriguez, who's really adopted this model of transforming ADP into a technology company and had the foresight um, to invest in a number of we call them innovation labs that we've started around the world, actually. So we've got three here in the U.S., in, in uh, New York City, in the Chelsea area, in Atlanta, in Pasadena, California. And then globally, we've got in, in Latin America, EMEA, and India uh, as well. You know, across the board, we actually have more than a 1,000 uh, engineers, developers, UX product folks staffed in these locations. And the philosophy was exactly what you described. Let's, we need to break out of some of the historical legacy uh, processes, cultural mindsets, et cetera, and, and start up or, you know, start up our own innovation labs that, you know, would operate um, with the flexibility and the freedom of any startup, but of course has the advantage of the scale of ADP uh, backing it. And by the way, that's you know, the, the strength of the balance sheet, but also we have, you know, the data and the client base and the distribution assets. So it's always getting that balance right of, you know, giving the, the innovation lab enough freedom and flexibility to innovate, 
but also enough connectivity so that you can take advantage of the natural uh, scale that we bring to the, the party. And so one of the aspects of that, a key philosophy, is that when we started up these innovation labs, we put them in locations, brand new, separate locations that were nearby uh, existing kind of population centers. So, you know, our flagship innovation lab is in is in Chelsea, New York, which is, you know, one of the most competitive markets um, in the world. Um, and it's 15 miles from our headquarters in New Jersey. So it's it's close enough that, you know, we can have executives that can pop in and we can have some people, you know, uh, uh, cross-pollinate a, a little bit of talent there. But, you know, 90% of the hiring in that particular location came from the Chelsea market, from the startups and the other high-tech companies, because we were looking to bring a different mindset and a different talent base um, into the company. And so folks that we were able to attract in those in those locations, and again, if you, you walk in there, and I know you visited us uh, in Chelsea, you wouldn't be able to discern it from any other kind of startup-y type environment uh, in, in the market out there. Um, but, you know, we do then have the advantage of some of the practices that we started uh, uh, implementing there. Now we've, we've rolled back into the rest of the organization. Um, so, for instance, I mean, they were very early adopters of, of agile development. Um, also, you know, the DevOps kind of culture that they built there is something that we've ported back into the rest of the organization now, which has been, been very effective. Um, you know, a simple, I have a little catchphrase that I utilize from time to time, which is, well, if it's good enough for Chelsea, it's good enough for the rest of us here too. <laughs> so why don't we just, uh, why don't we just try that? Um, and so I think that's been, you know, that's been effective, uh, for us. It's, it's worked out, uh, quite nicely. We've won a bunch of awards. I mean, in our industry, uh, you know, there's the big industry annual conference put on, uh, by HR executive magazine. It's called the annual HR technology Com- uh, conference. Um, and they have two awards that they give there, which is either product of the year um, or awesome new technology. And we've won either one or in many cases swept, you know, both of the top awards uh, for the last five years in a row, uh, in large part, you know, driven by uh, the innovations that have come out of uh, out of the innovation lab, although some of those have come from other parts of the company, as I, I've shared with, with the team. It's like, but we can't just outsource all of the innovation and say, okay, those people over there, they're responsible for the innovation. As I said, it's about a thousand people, but ADP is a company is close to 60,000 people. So it's not like the other 59,000, we want them to switch their innovation gene off. It's like, no, you know, let the innovation lab, you know, raise the bar a little bit for all of us push the envelope, but, you know, the the best case is when we see some of those practices permeating back, and it's always at the fine line, like, you know, I want to have, like, a healthy competitiveness, you know, so I have some of the, the teams in the, I'll call them the traditional locations looking around, like, hey, I can I can do that, I can do better than that, as long as we keep the, the tension and the balance on the healthy side of the equation, um, I actually think that's a good thing, and that it spurs more innovation. Uh, and faster development uh, for the entire company as a whole, not just not just folks in the innovation labs. That's interesting, and I love the I love the anecdote about the the, the lessons you draw from them. That in some ways that's your laboratory to 
to uh, develop new practices to say nothing of the products or or services that they're developing, but also just the means of developing them and drawing that back into into your headquarters and your offices around the world. I, I wonder, you know, one of the things that has been a knock on some innovation labs is that it's a prototype factory rather than something that develops new billion dollar revenue streams. And uh, and naturally, of course, if you're innovating, you're not going to bat a thousand, right? Uh, it's more probably like a Cooperstown batting average. Uh, uh, you know, uh, if you're doing it appropriately, it does mean testing and tinkering and failing from time to time and learning from those failures. But I wonder, um, how do you think about that and making sure that at the end of the day, at least some of the output of the innovation lab is something that will move the needle on an organization that's already, uh, you know, a Fortune 500 organization? That's right. And, and that is a real, uh, a real challenge for us. So, you know, one of our top corporate-wide objectives uh, is sales from new product. And I think that's been a really important way to help us balance, you know, the desire to, to innovate and, as you described it, uh, you know, sometimes to, to, to tinker and to test with the need to, at the end of the day, commercialize. And so, um, you know, we've, we've set a high bar for ourselves on, on revenue and sales from new product. And, you know, I think that's been a forcing mechanism for us to make sure that we've got, we've got eyes on the prize. Um, I will say, you know, in general, uh, not just us, but I've, I've probably found in other organizations I've worked in in the past, one of the hardest challenges that any organization has is not starting new ideas that have promise, but killing the ones that, that don't uh, materialize. So sometimes I refer to it as, you know, the uh, killing your darlings or killing your babies, et cetera. That's probably, I would say, from a, a different from from a, a true, you know, uh, venturing perspective to coming inside more of a, a corporate incubator uh, type approach is I, I just see there's a difference in terms of the level of necessary ruthlessness to shut stuff down, which is a healthy pruning to make room for it's like hey we've got this great idea fantastic we tested it it didn't make money we tested it again it still didn't make money it's like at some point you have to shut that down most importantly so that you can move that capacity to the next idea and um, you know while we have definitely done that and i can point to several things that we've killed it's probably an area where we could get better and i i think most organizations most large organizations in the space that i've talked to uh, seem to struggle with, if that makes sense. It does. No, exactly. Exactly. I, I think it's uh, and the fact that you've been, your team has been at it. Your innovation labs are, I think, among the older ones, at least among large organizations, innovation labs. No doubt your, your learning loop is, is that much more, uh, has been turning that much, much longer. Uh, and so the insights you're drawing from that, that, that I would imagine are much deeper as a result of it. Um, I wanted to ask you also, uh, reflecting back on the current crisis that we're in, what do you see as some of the indelible marks of it? Uh, there's a lot of, I, and I think, you know, part of me uh, hypothesizes that when you're in the fog of this, there, there, there's a natural tendency for all of us to think this will never end. And as a result of that, the way that, that we are working right now is how we will always work from, from this point forward. Uh, whereas, you know, if you look back a hundred years to, to the, the last global pandemic, the rubber band actually, you know, kind of snapped back fairly quickly. Now, you can argue, of course, that you had to be in offices to do work. There's no working from your house uh, in 1918 or 1919. But, uh, but that said, I, I'm curious, like, what your own reflections are and how you and the executive team at ADP are planning for whatever the new normal might be. Yeah. Um, no, it's, it's a good question. It's a tough one uh, to try and see through the fog, as you described it uh, very, 
very well point. Certainly, there's a lot of discussion and debate uh, right now about, you know, will we continue in this all virtual environment? Will we come back to a, an office environment? You know, I'll share from my own personal uh, experience that um, I found that the all virtual environment has been um, not as not as bad as I feared. Um, I actually think the challenge we'll have is as people start to come back, like when everybody's in the office, you know, that's got a certain sort of uh, cultural norms that, that everybody's comfortable with. When everybody's virtual, you know, that seems to, uh, we all, people are tr- starting to figure that out. I think it's always a challenge is when you have half the people that are in the office and half the people who are virtual. You know, we've all been in, in those meetings where you've got maybe, you know, seven people around a conference room table and then three, three folks who are dialed in remotely and getting the participation levels right and the voices heard, like, you know, you're at minute 58 of the meeting and finally somebody's like, oh, wait a second. Oh, we haven't heard from the folks on the phone yet. I'm looking up at the sky because we've got the, uh, you know, the speakers built into the ceiling. Uh, you know, Bob and Sue and, and what do you guys think? And, and that really, you know, was never effective. So I, I found that actually the, the protocols when everybody has been remote has been uh, a little bit better. I do worry about what's going to happen as folks talk about, well, can we do a partial reopening? Will we go, you know, 25%? I'm actually, you know, talking to you from, from uh, our headquarters right now. I'm in, I'm in the office today, but we're only at about 10% here. And so that don't have that dynamic right. But the other one I'm really thinking a lot about is, um, I mentioned it before, you know, our, our move towards Agile and our space in, in Chelsea was uh, in other innovation labs were these agile spaces where we had scrum teams together in, in kind of tight, packly dense locations so it'd be side by side to foster communication. We've actually been in the process of going through our other locations and retrofitting them to uh, adopt more of these agile spaces. And we sort of put the brakes on that. And now I'm kind of curious, you know, within our realm of, of technology is, you know, is this movement towards more agile space, you know, more tightly uh, uh, located scrum teams going to continue? Or, you know, now we're talking about, well, do we have alternate desking? Do I put plexiglass shields up in between? So that's the one that I'm really concerned about because it felt like um, we were making a lot of progress in terms of building out this culture of, of more collaboration more communication, faster development cycles. And in part, you know, it was our belief that the space was really helping that. And so now as we look forward to the future and, you know, we're a little bit more concerned about um, about social distance and the like, um, you know, it feels like that pendulum is going to swing back a little bit on on agile space and desking. And, and I'm not actually sure what that looks like, but I'm I'm very keen to make sure that we don't lose some of what we gain um, in in this first round of Agile. Yeah. Another thing that's ha- that's really been front and center for a lot of people is the the uh, the topic of diversity and inclusion. Certainly on the minds of a lot a lot of people before the 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 pandemic and the economic crisis, but but even more so now for a variety of reasons. And, and I wonder, um, you know how you're thinking about it uh, and especially like ways in which you might think about it with regard to your offering. Is that something that you're, you're giving greater thought to? Yeah, uh, very much so. And, and actually it's something we've been giving thought to for, for quite a while even. Um, so certainly it's gotten, it's gotten even more prominent given the, the current social climate, but it's also, 
something that, you know, in some cases, like you think about uh, fair pay and pay equity has been around a long time. Uh, so we launched um, a product we called our Pay Equity Explorer. Um, actually, it was one of the winners of one of those uh, awesome new technology awards that I described before back in, I think it was 2016 uh, when we pulled that one. And basically what that does, is it leverages our tre- treasure trove of, of employee data and some machine learning algorithms to basically crawl through the data and help uh, companies identify where they may have disparities uh, in, in pay and where there may be some uh, elements that uh, point to potential discriminatory practices that they want to get out in front of. And so we, we released that a while back. We built uh, in our recruiting products, I talked about what we do from a recruiting uh, perspective, um, some candidate relevancy algorithms. So these are things that would look to strip bias um, out of uh, employment uh, decision-making, out of hiring, out of the recruiting process. Some of the common ones that you would, we've talked about, you know, uh, publicly are, you know, things that would remove um, uh, names, um, addresses, any things that could be considered like cultural markers that might lead to, you know, subconscious. Um, there have been studies on this about, uh, you know, how that could lead to subconsciously more or fewer uh, recruiting, interviews, job offers, and the whatnot, and really zero in on on skills. And again, leveraging the the, the twin elements of really, really good data uh, and good algorithms to work together to embed that directly in a process, whether it's a, a compensation process, whether it's a recruiting process or a promotion process, but then also surface that up on some dashboards that we can give to our clients to say, look, Here's what you're doing, and we've used our algorithms, and compared to other clients, other companies like you, here's some things that you might want to be aware of or get out in front of before it you know, becomes potentially problematic down the road. I would say the other thing that we've done uh, on this was we started uh, a little over a year ago an AI ethics board, again, in part to make sure that uh, whatever we do, there's, there's always this risk out there that if you have biases already inherent in the data uh, because of past practices, that the in some cases, if not if not checked, the algorithms can reinforce those historical biases. Like, oh, I see we always like to hire candidates who look like this, so let me find you more candidates who look like this, as opposed to looking at markets. So we started an AI ethics board and actually recently published a, a public-facing statement on ethics in the use of AI and machine learning um, you know, and it gets into a lot of different uh, elements of that privacy uh, of individuals' respect of their rights, but also making sure that we don't have any kind of implicit biases in um, in our AI work. Yeah, interesting. Um, we've talked about a number of trends, artificial intelligence among them, and, and your company's use of that. Um, I wonder, as you look to the future, are there other trends that are particularly excite you, Don? Yeah, I would tell you one of the biggest ones is is the acceleration in terms of the embrace of digital and, and mobile technologies. Um, you know, I saw a, a recent study, um, I believe it was published by McKinsey, that talked about uh, adoption of mobile, of, of, of digital commerce, you know, has expanded faster in the last three months than the prior 10 years. Um, and it said it's moved. But, but it's always stuns me, the numbers. And, and, you know, McKinsey, they usually do a pretty good job, so I'm going to take them at their word. But they said the adoption of digital commerce went from 10% to 35%. I was like, wow, it's like there's really still 65% non-digital commerce. And I think about, you know, the number of, <laughs> of, 
of Amazon and, and FedEx and UPS delivery showing up at my doorstep. That's the biggest thing I've learned from this trend of, of working at, working from home for the past several uh, several months was how often the uh, delivery trucks were showing up at my doorstep unbeknownst to, to me while I was away <laughs> at the office. But uh, the faster embrace of digital and mobile, really exciting. Um, you know, as I mentioned, we, we launched our mobile apps back in, in 2008, 2009. And, and on the one hand, we've had great success with that, right? So ADP, if you go and look at the top, uh, top mobile apps for business, the ADP mobile app is typically in the top five. And that's not for our industry or category. That's in the universe of business. So we're really excited, um, about, you know, our mobile application footprint. And yet, we don't, we've never had a hundred percent adoption or utilization. But as I see, you know, as people have gone into this remote world, as we've embraced more digital commerce, as we've embraced more remote technologies, uh, in our personal lives, as well as in our, our work lives, um, I think there's going to be a new, another leg up in terms of our ability to digitally interact, um, with uh, people with workers with individuals to leverage things like artificial intelligence and bots to try and create that more humanized uh, constant interactive in- experience with not only um, our clients who are the companies or the employers but also building deeper connection with the employees of those clients and building those connections for life in part through their embrace of, of mobile and digital technology. Don, getting back to your set of responsibilities, we mentioned at the top that you're, you you run product and technology. You, you mentioned that in, in essence, for the one way to think about it is the combination of traditional CIO responsibilities and CTO responsibilities. Um, I'm curious, beneath you, are the roles bifurcated? That is, do you have like a traditional IT team under your CIO set of responsibilities and traditional product people uh, under your product set of responsibilities? Uh, or are there people like yourself uh, who have kind of bridged the gap between the two? Yeah, well, historically, it, it was exactly as you described. It, it was sort of like the ch- separation of church um, and state uh, out there. And I think, you know, in, in part driven by by the, the public cloud move um, and in part with our full embrace of, of DevOps, it's kind of been blurring the lines a little bit between the, the app dev and the, the infrastructure side. You know, we've, we've adopted this mindset now that we've, we've rolled DevOps out throughout our entire organization called, it's called build it, run it, own it. Uh, and oh, by the way, secure it too, where we're pushing responsibility for the ops back to the dev teams who, who at the end of the day, they know their code the best. They know their apps. They know their users. So they're a little bit closer to the, you know, the, the infrastructure that's running on. And that's, that's forcing the developers to get deeper into the operations. It's forcing now the infrastructure team, um, quite candidly to, in order to keep up with some of the movement to the public cloud to become a little bit more service oriented and know their, uh, their clients effectively, the developers better. You know, one of the biggest things I've, I've done to try and foster that, um, is some rotations among the team. So recently, uh, less than six months ago, um, I had my uh, CIO and the leader of our single largest uh, app dev team switch roles. Um, and so, you know, I thought that would be really effective in particular by having somebody running the CIO function who's never worked in infrastructure before 
but it's been a customer of infrastructure for his entire career. And now as we're moving to the cloud, can bring kind of a different perspective on it. And we started to push that concept of rotation down deeper. And so we're doing many more like that uh, underneath the uh, underneath the surface so we can build that more of a shared understanding of what we're trying to do as opposed to two groups that, you know, quite candidly, historically had, had butted heads a, a little bit, um, if, if you know what I mean. Well, Don Weinstein, thank you so much for sharing your perspectives uh, on the your, your purview within ADP, your thought based upon thoughts based upon the great data that you have at your access about where we are in the current pandemic and economic crisis, uh, where your your organization is going and the journey along the way. It's really been a great conversation. Well, thank you. It's always a pleasure. Thanks for tuning in. Please join me on Thursday when my guest will be George Lee, the co-chief information officer of Goldman Sachs, and Clay Johnson the Chief Digital and Technology Officer of Yum Brands.